Gabe Miller here, and I want to personally thank you for checking out our podcast. And I also want to encourage you to click the subscribe button so that each week's message will automatically show up in your feed. Another great way to stay connected with this is on our website at yourimpactchurch.com and on all of our social media outlets at Your Impact Church. I hope this message today encourages you, inspires you, and challenges you. Let's jump into the message. Now, jump in this week and read through one chapter. You'll read through it all on your own this week before we gather next week for uh, for James chapter 5. But today we're in James chapter 4, and uh, I want to jump in with the first three verses, and, uh, and and let's just allow the Lord to speak to us, to us through His Word. This is, what, this is what it says, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Now, I've mentioned this probably every single week, but when you read through James, honestly, it's better if you read it just from start to finish all in one sitting. It doesn't take that long. It's only five chapters. But there were no chapters in the Bible when, when this was written. It was just a letter that was written from beginning to end, and you're reading through it. And so I want to point out the fact that at the end of chapter 3, um, James has been talking about you know planting seeds of peace. Those who sow their seeds of peace and being peacemakers. Remember last week I asked you the question, are you a peacemaker or a pot stirrer? You know, that we don't have to conform to be able to be a peacemaker or to plant seeds of peace, right? We can still be transformed, still be living for God, but do it in a way that's God-honoring and be peacemakers, you know, among ourselves and among others. But, um, but it's difficult to have peace, come on, and you know this, it's difficult to have peace when there's quarrels and there's fights and there's arguments among you. So it's interesting to me that chapter 3 ends in the very next verse, he says, and what's causing all of these problems? You know, like, He's talking about peacemakers, and then he goes right into, and what's causing all of the quarrels and the fights and the arguments and, you know, all of these things among you, right? Like, brothers and sisters in Christ, you're arguing and you're fighting and you're quarreling and you're at each other and you're viewing each other in these ways. And according to James, you know, these people are fighting amongst themselves, and he gives us the cause of it all. He says, it's, it's your own desires that tend to cause you to do these things. It's the things that are already in you. And this goes back to over and over and over again. We're going back to the things that Jesus said where he said it's what's inside of you that will come out. And this is another situation where what's inside of you, James is pointing out, it's what's inside of you, the desires inside of you that are coming out and are causing all of these things and for you to, to fight each other. And, and my mind constantly goes back to what we're putting in and what we're allowing in because whether it's good or bad, that's going to be what comes out of us. I love the way that one commentary puts it. Uh, it said it this way, the human heart manufactures desires, frequently selfish ones. These can range from the mundane, something like, I want a little peace and quiet. Come on, anybody ever been there before? It's like, you know, that was a desire of my heart, I want a little peace and quiet. It says it can range from the mundane or to the weighty, something along the lines of, I want power and significance. When someone prevents you from satisfying a desire, you are tempted to view that person as an obstacle to be overcome as an enemy to be defeated. Therefore, the natural tendency is to murder and covet. It's not necessarily that you intend to slay anyone physically. Jesus, after all, reminds us that murder 
begins in the heart with hatred. Thus the believers James addressed were relating to one another as adversaries. And I found that interesting because it makes the point that it's our desires that are causing the fights and the quarrels and the arguments and things among us. And then he points out the fact that in the midst of that, the reason for that is that you have desires in your heart. You have desires, and here's what we tend to do. When our desire is not being met, we tend to view, or we're being held back from a desire that we have in our heart, we tend to, don't we just automatically go into, this is a person, this is a situation that needs to be overcome. This is a person that is against me, and they're against my desire, and they're against what, what, what is going on inside of me. And so we, when we're frustrated by the fact that we have desires inside of us that are not being met, that we feel like you know, people may even be against, or that our desire is not being satisfied, he says that we tend to relate to one another as adversaries. Instead of brothers and sisters in Christ, we tend to look at each other as you're somebody that I need to overcome and I need to get past at all costs because you're just trying to keep my desire from being fulfilled. And it causes quarrels and it causes arguments and it causes fights and it causes all of these things among us. And here's something that Jesus said going back to the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. He says, You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say... If you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. James, he, he says that we have this tendency to scheme and kill in ways to try to get the things that we want or deserve. And I'm just interested to find out today, anybody, do we have any schemers in the room? Anybody ever schemed behind the scenes to try to get things to go the way that you wanted them to go? You had a desire and so you were scheming to try to make sure it happens. You felt like there was opposition to what you wanted to see happen and so you were scheming behind the scenes and most of us most of this is based on the condition of our heart most of this is based on the condition of our heart it's that what we have in our heart is coming out what we've allowed in our heart is coming out not only in the things that we say but also in the things that we do and james also points out that we don't get simply because we don't ask god or we don't get because we ask god but we ask with the wrong motives and at the end of this, you know, this, this little passage that we just read, James says, you, ha you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And you still don't get it when you ask God because you ask God with the wrong motive. Well, what is the motive? To get my own desire fulfilled? The thing that I have seen is causing this among me. Like, I take that and I'm like, you know what, God, you need to do something about this. And God's like, you don't have the right motive. This isn't, this isn't about you this is about the bigger picture. Just two quick thoughts on this uh, that I wrote down is how crazy is it to be involved in quarrels and fights among ourselves over things that could be given to us by God simply by asking. That instead of asking God 
we argue with each other and we and, and we get frustrated with each other because we're trying to get and listen it might not even be bad things but we're trying to get things that we think we need or that we want or that we desire and we don't go to god for it we try to take it from each other and we get jealous and we get envious and and we scheme and we covet and all of these things to try to get what we want and how crazy is it that we would do that when james is telling us hey you just need to ask god for it you just need to go to god for it and then another thought on this is what is the foundation of wrong motives here's what i think it is it's not being kingdom focused it's being focused on you and we do this a lot the reason i get frustrated a lot of times is because what i want is not coming to pass what i want i'm not seeing happen what i want in my marriage is not happening and so i'm frustrated what i want in this situation is not happening and so i get frustrated and he says no you just need to go ask god get in your prayer closet and start talking to god about it and tell the lord this isn't about me i like here's here's how and this is hard to do but this is something we should strive to do when we get when we get alone and we're praying say god here is what is in my heart and here's what i want to see happen but if this is not your plan if you want something different i'll do that if I'm the one that's wrong, I'll go your way. I'm not going to just be dogmatic on my way. Because he said, listen, you, you're starting to view each other as adversaries because you're not getting the things that you want, and you just need to go to God and ask God for it and have the right motive. Be kingdom-minded and not just self-minded. It made me ask the question, what would it look like in our lives if we lived our lives based on building the kingdom of God, loving God, and loving others? Building the kingdom of God, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving other people. And then James continues, he goes on, he says, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. Here's one thing that I have discovered, and this is a struggle for all of us, okay? Anybody ever had one foot in the things of God and one foot in the world? And it was like, I'm, you know, and it could look like this. It could look like I'm one person on a Sunday, and I'm another person on a Tuesday. It could look like I, I desire the things of God, but I'm not willing to give that up. I really want God's best for my life, but I'm not fully willing to submit everything to Him. And so I'm kind of like dabbling in the things of God, but dabbling in the things of the world. And I really don't think that worldliness and godliness can coexist inside of us. Like we're, we're on the fence and we're back and forth and it depends on what day it is or who we're around. And it's interesting to me because through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James uses the term adulterers to describe this type of thing. And I want to read it to you. This is how the Amplified Bible translates it. It says, You adulteresses, disloyal sinners, flirting with the world and breaking your vow to God. Do you not know that being the world's friend, that is loving the things of the world, is being God's enemy? So whoever chooses to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, James is saying you can't have both. And if you choose... To, to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. 
And Jesus said on the flip side of that, that whenever you go all in for God and you're following him, he said, the world has hated me and so it will hate you. This is what he told his disciples. The world has hated me and so the world is going to hate you. In other words, don't be surprised whenever you go all in for God and you're following Jesus if the world or the things of the world or the world system hates you. You you can't have both. So the world's going to hate you if you're following after Jesus, but on the other side of that, if you're, if you're following after the world, if you're being a friend of the world, you're making yourself an enemy of God. So we need to be all in for Jesus. There's an Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah. Maybe you've read the book of Jeremiah. Um, he wrote about how God's people were not being faithful to him, and this is, this is one way that he puts it. This is Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. She saw that I divorced faithless Israel because of her adultery. But that treacherous sister Judah had no fear, and now she too has left me and given herself to prostitution. This is God talking about his people not being faithful to him. That if you read through the Old Testament, God had a chosen people, and he was going to accomplish all this through these people. Now in the New Testament, he's accomplishing this through the church. You are the church. If you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus, you are the church. And he's saying, listen, and if you read through the Old Testament... Like over and over and over again, God's people that he had chosen, they're walking away, they're serving other idols, other, they're worshiping other idols. I mean, and God is constantly like, okay, I'm going to have to hand you over to this so that you'll eventually come back to the place to where you realize, no, you need me. Like, you need to come back to me. So over and over and over again, this happens in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah even uses the words like adultery and prostitution. That God is, I think that God is pretty serious about how he desires to have our full devotion. And for us to not be one foot in and one foot out, but to be fully committed to following Jesus. If you read Exodus 34, we won't read it, but it tells us that God is a jealous God. And we think of jealousy in a bad way, but God is a jealous God because he loves you. This is like the jealousy that would come between you and your spouse whenever you see something going on and you're like, "Uh uh-uh, that's mine. Like, this this is... God is a jealous God. And when you give your life to him and you surrender your life to him, he's like, you're mine. Like now, now you're, you're my son. You're my daughter. Like you're the bride of Christ. And here's, here's the best way that, that I know to say it. It's simply this. God wants you. God wants you. He just wants you. He wants your heart. He wants like full devotion. He wants all of your life. He wants all of your worship. And here's what we know. We sing a song about this pretty frequently. He's worthy of it all. He's worthy of it all. My fear is that some of us sing that song or live that song out like this. He's worthy of most of it. He's worthy of everything but this. He's worthy of everything except my worry. He's worthy of everything except my like full devotion. He's, he's worthy of everything except me serving him. He's worthy of everything except my finances. He's worthy of everything except this part of my life. And no, he's worthy of it all. And God is not out to get you. God just, he loves you so much. He wants you. He wants you. And he looks at our lives a lot of times, and my fear is that he sees people that are one foot in and one foot out. 
and not really fully committed, not really fully devoted, not really sold out. Like, I have been crucified with Christ. Like, Paul was sold out. It didn't matter. I mean, to live is to live as Christ, to die is gain. That's sold out. If you kill me, I'm going to be with Jesus. If I'm still alive, I'm going to preach the gospel. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm not even alive anymore. It's Jesus living inside of me and through my life. I mean, that's, that's, somebody, that's a picture of somebody who's just all in. Like, no matter what the cost. I mean, hey, Paul, they're, they're preaching the gospel while you're in prison, and they're doing it with wrong motives. And Paul says, at least the gospel's being preached. They might be trying to make it difficult on me. They might be trying, you know, and some are doing it with the right motives. But Paul's like, at least Jesus is being proclaimed. I mean, that's a, that's a dude that's sold out. And so many of us, from time to time, we're just one foot in and one foot out. And we're like, well, God's worthy of most of it, but maybe he's not worthy of all of it. And, and we've just got to surrender our life to him. Isn't it exhausting living both ways? Isn't it, isn't it just wearing you out to try to live both ways? To try to have your own solutions, but now I'm going to lean into God for this. But, well, I'm kind of, you know, like, isn't it, doesn't it wear you out? Like, God just wants your devotion. He wants your commitment. He wants all of you. All of you. So that he can have, I, I believe there are so many of us that are not experiencing life to the fullest that Jesus himself said, I came to give you. Because we won't surrender. We won't surrender. We've got to surrender everything. Look at these, these next few verses, verses 6 through 10. He says, and he gives grace generously. Talking about God. I love how James keeps coming back to, he keeps using terms like generous God, and he gives grace generously. Like God is, God is a generous God. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. He'll lift you up in honor. Um, this is a, so verse 6 is a hard verse for us to swallow. Because James says, he gives grace generously, and as the scriptures say, in other words, he's quoting another scripture, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why would God oppose the proud? I don't know about you, but I would rather be on the grace-receiving end of God than be in opposition to God. Well, how can you be in opposition to God? How, why does God oppose the proud? Here's the reason why I think. When we are humble, we're serving God, it's not about us, but pride almost makes us into our own God. So we think that, look what I've done. Look what's going on in me. Um, look what I've accomplished. You know, we even get in seasons sometimes where we feel like we don't even need God anymore, like we've completely forgotten about God. We remembered Him whenever we were struggling, but now we're in a place where we're not struggling, and so we're like completely forgetting about God. It, it almost makes us... We almost portray ourselves, and we would never say it this way, but it's almost like we want to be our own God. And God opposes pride. God is not for pride. 
God is for humility. God is for us humbling ourselves to recognize that he is in control. To recognize that he is the ultimate authority. Jesus, you know, like Jesus talks about this, that if we attach ourselves to the world, that we place ourselves in opposition to God. James writes about this. Peter would even tell us to clothe ourselves in humility. Come on, isn't that a great visual? That every day when we get up, clothe, like put on humility. Why? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He quotes the same thing. And right before it, he says, you need to get up, you need to clothe yourself in humility. Get up tomorrow morning and say, you know what, today I'm just clothing myself in humility. This is not anything that I have done, this is everything that God has done. I just want to be used by God today, and whatever he tells me to do, I'm just clothing myself in humility. I don't want an ounce of pride in me, I want to be humble. We clothe ourselves in humility. Um, The next two verses, verses 7 and 8, are some of my favorite verses. You ever... You read your Bible and there's just certain things that stick out to you. And every time you read it, it's like that speaks to you just in a different way. These verses are a couple of verses that have done that for me over the years. Because there are four statements that are made in these verses. And I'll give them to you. I think they're going to be on the screen. He says, humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. And wash your hands and purify your hearts. And so I want to talk for just a minute. On, and just answer the question, what does it look like to do these things? Like, what is the Bible talking about when it, when it says these things? How can we make it practical? How can we apply it to our lives? And here's the first thing, you know, just looking at these a little bit deeper. Humble yourselves before God. I think this is submitting yourself to the authority of God. This is fully submitting yourself to the authority of God. It is a picture of not living as if you're in control, And as if you know what's best for your life, but humbling yourself before God and recognizing that God is the authority and I am fully submitted to his authority in my life. That God knows more than me. Come on, would anybody admit that today, that God knows more than you? God, he sees the end from the beginning. And I think this is a picture of us submitting and saying, you know what, I don't have all the answers. I can't figure it all out. I may not even be able to understand everything. But I am submitted to the authority of God. The next one, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I like this one. Um, This is a picture, resisting the devil, it's a picture of standing firm against the devil. Um, And it's this picture of a, like if you want to, you know, envision a soldier standing their ground against an enemy. Um, I would submit to you that there are, some of us, and maybe, um, maybe it comes in waves where we don't resist the enemy. Um, there are seasons in, in our lives where we don't resist the enemy. We don't stand firm against the enemy. We, we fall prey to the enemy, and we get a woe-is-me attitude because the enemy keeps coming at us. I heard, um, I heard a, on a podcast this last week or the week before where a guy was, was saying, if you're, not, if you're not bumping into the enemy every so often in life, as you walk through life, you might be walking in the same direction he is. Like, we have to expect that there's going to be opposition. I said it a few weeks ago, when you get serious about following Jesus, the enemy gets serious about opposing you. And so we have to learn to resist the enemy, to stand firm against the enemy. It reminds me of what Paul says when he's going through the armor. He says, you need to put on, like our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against spiritual things and in realms that we cannot see. 
And he says, so you need to suit up. You need to put on the armor and you need to pray. You need to put on the armor and at the end of all that, he says, and pray in the Spirit on every occasion. Pray in the Spirit at all times, whatever translation you're reading. We need to put on the armor of God. I had somebody tell me after the, after the first service, I said, I'm going to use that. And he said, all right, you go ahead and use that. Um, the, the only, like, um, we say that the only offensive weapon that's listed in that chapter is the sword of the Spirit, and it's the, the Word of God. But if you study that, it's not like a long sword. It's like a little bitty one. In other words, you can only fight up close. But what he had said was, what was interesting to him is that right after that, he mentions prayer. And prayer is something that can fight at a distance. I don't have to be close to pray. So there might be some instances where I need to pray about it, and I need to pray in the Spirit on every occasion because I'm fighting at a distance, and I'm fighting off things that may be coming down the road that I don't even know. And there are some instances, come on, you know this to be true, to where the enemy's right up on you. And you need to have the sword of the Spirit. You need to have God's Word in your heart so that you can quote it at Him. You can do like Jesus did when He kept coming at Him. And, and, and Jesus just said, it is written. It is written. No, this is who God says I am. No, this is, this is, what, no, this is, this is who I am. No, this is what is true. That's not true. This is what is true. And so we've got to use the weapons and the armor that we've been given by God. You know, the Bible would even tell us that the weapons that we use to fight these battles, they're not like physical weapons. It's not like what you would envision. It's, it's, they're spiritual weapons because we're in a spiritual battle. The next one is to come close to God and God will come close to you. Um, I think we've got to be intentional to lean into God. Getting in God's presence, spending time in prayer, spend time in praise and worship. Come on, did you know that, the, that Sundays are not the only day that you can praise and worship? <laughs> we've turned out... You spoke a message on this, I don't remember how many weeks ago it's been now, not very long ago, about worship. And that worship is a lifestyle. Like you can, you can praise and worship driving down the road, you can praise and worship when you get up in the morning, you can praise and worship when you're cooking dinner, you can praise and worship when you're, you know, like you, like you can praise and you can worship God everywhere. It's not just a part of a service that you come to, but it's something that you can, you can take with you and you can apply it and you can put it into practice every single day. We need to be obedient when, when God's leading us to do something. I think that these are all things that draw us closer to God. It says, come close to God, and he will come close to you. Somebody said it this way one time, said if you feel, anybody ever felt distant from God? Some of you may feel that way right now. It's like, man, it feels like God is so far away. And they made this statement, said if God feels so far away, he didn't move. And when we lean into God, lean into God, I think about Elijah when he's at the edge of the cave and there's the earthquake and there's the wind and the, you know, all this crazy stuff and it says that God was not in any of that. He was in the gentle whisper. And I know you've heard this before, but the only way you can hear a whisper is if you're close. We've got to lean into God. Lean in a little bit more this week. Spend a little more time in prayer this week. Spend a little more time reading God's word this week. Spend a little more time in worship as you're driving down the road this week, instead of, you know, listening to talk radio or, you know, whatever it is that you listen to, I don't know, just what is it for you? Just ask the Lord, what is it for, what is it for me that, that is going to get me to lean into you, to draw close to you? And then here's the last one, um, it was wash your hands and purify your hearts, and, and I just summed this up in one word, and it's the word repent, repent. Now some of you, whenever you hear the word repent, anybody ever had a bad experience? 
And when you hear the word repent, you're like, "Mm mm-hmm. Anybody, you hear the word repent and somebody comes to mind? You hear the word repent and you remember when you were driving down the road that one day and somebody was yelling at you? Like, I think that the enemy has taken the word repent and caused it to mean something or to be portrayed in a way that it was never meant to. Because repent means to change the way you think. Jesus, when he comes out of the wilderness and he's been fasting, been tempted, and he comes out and he's starting his earthly ministry, first thing he says, repent. Repent. Why? kingdom of God's here. In other words, you're going to have to think different. You're going to have to think different. What's the first thing Jesus comes out and he says? He says, you're going to think differently because this isn't going to look like what you've, what you've thought it was going to look like. This isn't going to look like what you've experienced for the last however many years. You're going to have to think different. You're going to have to change the way you think. Change the way you think. Change the way you think. Um, washing your hands, I think it's this really cool visual of being done with how you've been living and how you've made a decision to live differently. You ever made the statement, I'm washing my hands of that? I think about when Jesus was on trial. He's before Pilate. And there's all this pressure. And finally, he, he just says, fine, it's on you. You take him and crucify him. And then he washes his hands. As if to say, I have nothing, I'm done with this. This isn't on me. And it's a picture of washing your hands. It's like, this is the way I've been living. I'm done. I'm done with that. And I'm going to live differently. I'm going to allow my heart to be purified. I'm going to begin to think differently. I'm going to lean into God. I'm going to repent. Will change my mind. One person said that we should learn to repent regularly. That repentance should be like a regular thing. Um, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about repenting. Talking about I've been thinking wrong. I've been acting wrong. I've been living wrong. I haven't been following Jesus like I'm supposed to be, and and today I'm. I need to turn around. I need to start going in the opposite direction. I need to start thinking differently. I need to change my mindset. I said we need to repent regularly. Um, I like this statement. Just I was reading a lot of things this, this last week, preparing for this, and uh, I came across this question that I want to ask you today. Do you recognize that you sin, or do you just make mistakes? Because I would submit to you that people that feel like they just make mistakes don't feel like they need to repent. That it's recognizing that, no, like the way that I've been living, I was just living in sin. Like, just calling it what it is, you're going to make mistakes. But I think there's a difference between sin and making mistakes. And then he went on to say this. He said, Jesus didn't die for mistakes. He died for sin. And we like to sugarcoat it. We like to make it sound better than what it actually is. But when we recognize, listen, sin recognizes, like, when, I, when I'm like, yeah, I'm just, yeah, I, it's sin, and I need a Savior. When it's viewed as a, when it's viewed as a mistake, well, I just need to do better. 
I just need to do better. And Jesus didn't die for mistakes. He died for sins. I think, I even put it this way, that pride says I made a mistake. Humility says I've sinned and I need a Savior. And I wonder what our lives would look like if we just did these four things. If we submitted ourselves to God's authority, if we used the armor and the weapons that we've been given to fight, if we intentionally drew closer to God every day and we washed our hands of this old way of living and said, you know what, the old is gone, the new has come, I'm a new creation. And what's happened on the inside of me is going to be a reality on the outside of me. If we humble ourselves or make ourselves low before the Lord, then the very end of that passage we read, it says that he will lift us up. If you study that, one translation even says he'll give us purpose. He'll give us purpose. What if instead of trying to exalt yourself and act like you've got it all together, you submitted yourself to God and allowed him to exalt you? And one commentator made this statement, then we'll go into the next couple of verses. He said, riding God's elevator to the top always starts with a trip down. You can't work your way to the top. If you're going to ride God's elevator to the top and allow him to exalt you and allow him to give you purpose and allow him to take you where he wants to take you, it always starts with a, a trip down. It starts with humility. Next couple of verses, verses 11 and 12, says, Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you're criticizing and judging God's law, but your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy, so what right do you have to judge your neighbor? And the, words judge, the word judge here in these verses can also be translated as to separate or to distinguish or to condemn. Um, so it says that if you're doing this type of thing, that you're also judging God's law, and Jesus told us that he came to fulfill the law and that all the law and the prophets hang on, on this. He was asked, what is the most... What's the most important commandment? What is the most important thing that we can do? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. In other words, he summed it all up. He said, here's what you do. And isn't it interesting, Kate? I, I visualize this as if you, if you think about your closet and you have the, the rod that goes across the closet. It's like love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And everything else is just hanging on it. So if I'm loving God and loving my neighbor as myself, I'm doing this. I'm paying attention to that. Like all of it, everything that God gave, he was like, here's, here's why I'm giving it. Because I want you to love me with everything. And I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. I think this is why James sums up verse 12 with the question. He says, what right do you have to judge your neighbor? What right do you have to condemn or try to separate or place judgment on your neighbor when you're called to love your neighbor. Not to judge your neighbor, but to love your neighbor. We're not called to criticize or judge each other in this way because it means that we're judging the law. And we're called to obey the law instead of judging or whether or not judging whether or not it applies to you. Have you ever so if all the law and the prophets can be summed up in love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself, have you ever tried to, um, have you ever tried to decide whether or not it applied to you in this situation? Like, I know that I'm supposed to love God with everything, and I know there's, like, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, but I think this might be God's exception to the rule. 
I think this might be the moment where maybe that doesn't apply. <laughs> maybe that's not the thing. And it reminds me of another guy, I want to read you a few verses, that had an encounter with Jesus and had a conversation with Jesus. And I mentioned just a little bit of it a minute ago, but this is in Luke chapter 10. It says, And a certain lawyer, an expert in Mosaic law, stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this habitually, and you will live. But he... The man, wishing to justify and vindicate himself, asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Is this person my neighbor? Is neighbor a proximity thing? Is neighbor the people that I live just the closest to? And here's what Jesus did. He told a story. You remember the story? The story of the Good Samaritan. This passes by and he passes by and one person stops and helps and pays for everything and leaves money and says i'll come back and check on you and if there's anything owed when i come back i'll pay that and then jesus makes a point he says do that do that do that but how often this is a, a perfect picture in my mind of somebody who is trying to decide does this apply to me instead of just being obedient to what Jesus had already said. And Jesus said, if you'll go and do these two things, love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself, and I love the Amplified because it says, and do this habitually. Not one time. Not once a week. All the time. Make it a habit. You know what I do? I just love God and love people. I just love God and love people. Our responsibility is to love God and love people. And everything that we do and say should be done in love. Everything that we do and say should be done kingdom-minded. God is the only one who can judge, right? He's the only one who is just in everything, who truly sees the heart in everything, and who can pass judgment at the appropriate time. This is not talking about discernment. Discernment is a completely different thing. This is talking about judging. This is talking about deciding on value. This is talking about condemning because somebody has done something to you or I'm more important than they are or they're more important than they are. Like this is, this is not about discernment. It's about judging. And God's the only one who can really judge. I even wrote it down this way, as I was thinking about it this last week, is I can make a great Gabe, but I make a terrible God. I can make a, if I'm leaned into the Lord and I'm following the Holy Spirit, I'm following Jesus, I can make a great me, and you can make a great you. When the power of God is working in you and you're leaned in, you can make a great you, but you will always make a lousy God. And sometimes we just like to put ourselves in the place of God in certain situations. And we're not called to be in that seat. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to stay in that seat. God knows it all. God sees the heart. God is the only one who is just. Jesus would even say, why would you call me good? God's the only one who's good. 
He, he's the one. So we just need to leave the judging to him. And as God has shown us grace and mercy, we should show others grace and mercy. He goes on, verses 13 through 16. He says, look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. In other words, I, I picture this in my mind like I've made a plan and, and James just looks and says, how do you know you're even going to wake up? How do you know what your life is going to be like tomorrow? How do you, like, how do you know? Your life is like a morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants to, wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. Bring the worship team back. Where are all my planners at? You're a planner. You're a planner. All right, how many of you, at least you have a planner? Like you, some form of, <laughs> you may not use it. Where are, my, where are my planners at? Planners at, how many, you got a five-year plan. Anybody got a five-year plan? Like, hey, this is my five-year plan. You got a 10-year plan? Some of you are looking around, and you're like, what, who in the world comes up with a 10-year plan, like where you're going to be in 10 years, okay? This is what, this, but this is what we like to do, and some of that is personality-driven, but, but ultimately when push comes to shove, we, we like to make plans, don't we? And I just jotted down a few things, like we plan how we can move up in our company. Anybody ever done this? Where you work, you're like, you're, you're planning out. Okay, if I do this and I do this and I'm here this long, apparently this is how all this works. And so I'm planning out how I can get to the place that I want to be in the place that I work. So we like to make plans. We plan how long we'll live somewhere before we'll move to something better. Right? Anybody ever plan? All right, we're going to buy this house. We're going to get in here. We're going to get some equity and we're going to pay some down. And then we're going to sell that house. We're going to use that to do this. And you make a plan on how you can get, okay, we're going to start here and then we're going to go here. And then we're going to do this and you make a plan, and that's all good, right? We make, we plan to live a certain way and then establish a career and then we'll settle down and get married, right? We try to plan out our lives. Like, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. When I'm 22, I'm gonna graduate and then I'm gonna go to work here and I'm gonna work there for three years and that's gonna get me to this place and then when I get to there, then I'm gonna get over to this place and then by the time I'm 31, I'm gonna be ready to settle down and then I'm gonna get married and then we're gonna figure out our careers together and then by the time we're 35, we're gonna figure out, okay, I think we want some kids and I want four and, and, and I don't know how many they're gonna want, but we're gonna go with my plan because I want four and, then, and we plan all this out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We plan out everything and this is not a verse against planning. This, has, this isn't telling you not to plan. But can I ask you a question? What if God decided to mess up your plan? Some of you just got chills. What if God, what if God had a different plan? What if you planned and 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 you thought, man, this is exactly how I'm going to live my life and this is exactly where I want to be. And then God had a different plan. And wouldn't it be awful to make all your plans and then discover that God had a different plan? And you could have known what God's plan was. And you could have submitted your plan to his plan and said, okay, here's what I think you're leading me to. Here's what I think you're calling me to. Here's what I think you're asking me to do. But I want to submit this to you. And if you have a different plan or if this needs to go a different direction, I'm going to go your way. But I'm just trying to get in step with you and trying to know where you're taking us, where you're leading our family, what you're, what you're wanting to do. But a lot of times we don't... We, a lot of times we don't involve God in our planning. And then we have a moment in prayer or something like that later on down the road, and God's like, I've got a plan. I have a plan. 
God's not against plans. But what if God actually has a better plan? I think that our responsibility is not necessarily to try to achieve our own plans, but it's to be faithful and obedient to the plans of God. One person said it this way, God is not against making plans, but it's one thing for a believer to make plans and another to think himself sovereign over them. And that's what I think James is getting at. He's, he says, you're saying we're going to go here, we're going to move here, we're going we're to start this business, we're going to make this money, and we're going to sell this, and we're going to do this. And he says, how do you even know? How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? So, so make, make plans. But get with the Lord. And make your plans according to what he's leading you to do and where he's guiding you. And say, all right, Lord, this is what I'm feeling. Because I believe this with all my heart, that the Holy Spirit will prompt you to do things. And you'll feel, you'll, like, you'll feel like, man, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. And I just feel like this is the direction I'm supposed to be going. And, and I feel like this is what God has for us. So, so make some plans. Spend time in prayer. Make plans. But take those plans to God and say, okay, God, this is, where, this is how I feel like you're leading. This is what I feel like you're wanting us to do. This is what I think the next five years is going to look like based on what I've been you know, feeling in my spirit. But if you have a different plan than this, we're going your direction. You know, like mark something out, write something in the margin, you know, like God, you have access to all the margins and, and the red pins and all of the things to like, no, that, that's not what I have for you, but this is. And just submit Submit that to God. Take it to God and say, God, what is it, what is it that you're doing? What is it that you want to do? Look at this proverb. You're probably familiar with this, but it's Proverbs 16, 9. It says, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. And what if we made the decision not to just live for ourselves, but to live to obey and please the Lord and accomplish his purpose on the earth? What if in everything that we were planning, it was all about, God, what is your purpose for my life? What is your direction for my life? Where are you leading me? What do you want me to do? And I want my plans to line up with that plan. I want my plans to line up with his plan. And then chapter 4 ends this way. Will you stand to your feet and read this verse? And then I want to pray for you. James 4, 17, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. He says, remember, come on, this is your favorite verse in the Bible. I know it is. Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do. And then not do it. And isn't it interesting how James keeps coming back to the things that we do? That based on the things that we know, what are we doing? Based on the things that we've read or that we've heard, what are we doing? He says, remember, it's a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. In other words, you're missing the mark that God has for your life. You're missing what God wants to do when you know what you ought to do, but you choose not to do it. Anybody ever known what you ought to do and then you chose not to do it? And I'm going to say it again. There is no better time than the present to go back and do what God told you to do. To do the thing that you know you should have done and right now, come on, you know it. You're standing here right now and the Holy Spirit is bringing back to you. You remember what I told you to do? You remember what I was wanting you to do? 
And I just feel like if nothing else, I came to stand on this platform today to tell you, it's not too late. There's no better time than right now to do the thing that God wants you to do. Do the thing that God wants you to do. James is writing to these believers and really for us to read as well to show us what Christian maturity looks like. And he says part of Christian maturity is that we know what we should do and that we do it. That we don't just hear, we obey. That we don't just read, we apply. That we're obedient to the voice of God. We're obedient to the word of God in everything that we do, fully submitted to the authority of God. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to pray for you. Our prayer team can go ahead and make your way to the front. We're going to have an opportunity to pray with you if you need prayer for anything in your life. And listen, we all need prayer from time to time. We all walk through things and difficulties and struggles and things that we're not sure what to do with. And, And here's the thing. We all need prayer. Don't let pride keep you from receiving prayer today if you need prayer in your life. But before we do that, I want to pray for you. And I just want to pray that that God's going to God's gonna plant this in your heart like, like only He can. Because so many things that we've talked about through the series and even just today, but that the Holy Spirit is going to, He's just revealing to you right now what you need to do with His Word. What you need to do with what He's already said. So Lord, right now, I thank you. Thank you for your word. I thank you that we have the opportunity like this to gather in this room. and Even those that couldn't be here, the technology to be able to tune in online and to go through your word and have time to worship. But Lord, we want to be not just hearers, we want to be doers. It's the doing that makes the difference. We don't want to just know you, we want to live for you. We don't want to just know what you're telling us to do. We want to actually do it. So God, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice and however this lands on every person's heart and on every person's ears today. And I ask you to do what only you can do. Speak to your people. Give us wisdom. Help us to know what to do. Holy Spirit, I pray as we sing this last song, if there's anybody here today who needs prayer for anything in their life, that you would draw them from prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.
Lord, can we lift our hands just all across this room? Lord, we thank you so much. You are so good and so merciful, so faithful. Lord, we stand in awe of you. Lord, I pray that maybe for those of us in the room that have lost that standing in awe of you, that we would be reminded of how good you are and how worthy you are and how holy you are. Be reminded of what you've already done. And Lord, I ask you to give us wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard and give us courage and boldness to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. We love you guys. We'll see you back here next weekend. We hope you have a great Sunday with family. Have a blessed day.